Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of July 28th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles. Turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. As we are nearing the latter portion of this Gospel as we've been working through it for the last uh, year or so. Jesus is making His way into Jerusalem. Last week, we saw Jesus in some ways, uh, not some ways, He did very clearly make a pronouncement that He, in fact, is the Messiah. Now, throughout much of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been, when He heals somebody or somebody figures out who He is, He tells them, don't tell anybody. Be quiet. And He said a reason for that, but that time has passed as we enter into this last week of Jesus' life. He's not telling anybody to be quiet about it anymore. In fact, when he engaged in what we saw last week, that riding of the donkey up towards the city of Jerusalem, what we call a triumphal entry, probably more accurately the triumphal approach, he's making a very clear declaration to all those who are paying attention that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And that declaration will not stop with the riding in on the donkey. It will continue today. Now, last week we saw that as he was riding in on that donkey, that the, the crowd was chanting, some in front, some behind, some in the sides. One group would shout, Hosanna. The other would shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just so we don't forget what that sounds like. Now remember, we talked last week, they're shouting Baptist style. And they're shouting Jerusalem style. Now there was a difference, right? Let's see where we start off today. Okay, so I know everybody kind of sits in the same place. So this week... You guys are Hosanna, and this week you guys are blessed as he who comes in the name of the Lord, all right? All right, ready? Hosanna! All right, very good Baptist yelling. <laughs> okay, now we're going to go for triumphal entry Jerusalem yelling, okay? Ready? That's a different thing, all right? Closer. <laughs> so Jesus announces himself as Messiah. He comes in on, 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 the, on that day and he does this. Now, in Mark chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus comes up to the temple. He comes up to the city gates on that donkey. And we didn't look at this verse last, uh, last week, but I want to begin with verse 11. So Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Now, this is the day the triumphal entry is taking place. He's walked part of the way, not all the way from Jericho, does the triumphal entry. He comes in, and it's almost anticlimactic. It's like there's been this noise, his dramatic entrance. He goes in, but it's late. And he just kind of looks around. No one's paying attention, and he leaves. This is that proverbial calm before the storm. Because the next day, it ain't going to be quiet. Verse 12. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those 
who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise to the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. I pray that you would open it up to us. That through the power of your spirit, you would make clear to us what it is you would have us to know this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we saw the king make his announcement. We saw we talked about making way for the king. This morning, the king has made his way into Jerusalem. And the king, as sometimes kings are perhaps want to do, he makes some demands. Kings will, in fact, do that, by the way. The kings expect to have full control over our entire lives. They expect things to go as they have said they are supposed to be, as they have set them out. That's part of what a king is. And so what we have this morning is a, is a place for a king. We made way for the king last week. We had a place for a king. We have the demands of a king this morning as he, wrote, as he comes back into Jerusalem. Now, as he does this, I want us to look at a couple things here. So he has the entry. He goes into Jerusalem, takes a look around that night. The temple walks back to Bethany, a couple miles outside of town. The next morning, he comes back in. Now, we have this little story here that seems to be kind of out of place. And Mark is actually weaving, to, weaving together to us for us a couple of different things. He's going to weave the story of Jesus interacting with this fig tree. He's going to weave that story in with this idea of Jesus cleansing the temple. Now these two things are not two separate stories. Mark weaves them together. He starts with one story, puts the cleansing of the temple, and then next week we'll see he actually comes back to the fig tree. And the reason is, these two things are intertwined. They, they have meaning together. They're not two separate, unrelated incidents. So as Jesus is walking in that morning to the temple, he sees this fig tree. Now Mark tells us that it was not the season for figs. In other words, any reasonable person approaching this fig tree would understand it's not the time for figs to be produced. We had a fig tree at our house in Georgia. We didn't know what it was. We, we bought the house in March of that year, and there was just, you know, there's just still no leaves on the trees in late February, early March. And the leaves came in, and it was a pretty good-sized tree, but we'd never seen anything quite like it. And I tried to look it up at you know, native trees to Georgia and couldn't really find anything about it. And it wasn't until about uh, June that as the, as the uh, blooms began to produce fruit that you began to see the shape and went, oh, it's a fig tree. And by August, we had figs. I'd really not eaten fresh figs. That was a great tree. I, I liked it so much, we planted a fig tree in the yard the house we bought here. Now, this is taking place around the Passover. So that's early to mid-spring at the latest. So guess what? It's not the time for figs. Did Jesus know that? Sure he did. What's taking place with the fig tree? Jesus is not walking up to the fig tree and going, no figs. Well, that, that blasted tree? Curse you. That's, that's not what's going on here. Jesus knows it's not the time for figs. What's he doing here? Well, again, we're going, to find, we're going to see the rest of this next week, but what Jesus is doing here is he's using this tree, if you will, as a parable. 
He's using this tree to announce to the disciples what he's about to do in Jerusalem. This tree is standing as a sermon illustration, if you will. That from the distance, it looked good. The leaves were in bloom, it was green, and if you didn't know what time of the year it was, you would have looked at that tree and thought, that's a tree with fruit on it. Now, as you would have gotten up close to it, you would have realized there was no fruit just yet. There's nothing, nothing edible just yet. So the tree looked one way, but in reality it was another. And Jesus is going to use this as an illustration. And as he curses the fig tree, he's about to exercise a pronounced judgment on Jerusalem. For Jerusalem and the practice of the worship of God that was going on in the temple from a distance may well have looked like it was productive. It may have looked like it was fruitful. It may have looked, in fact, healthy. But it wasn't. And the appearances of godliness in Jerusalem, the appearance of godliness in the worship of God in Israel, did not match the reality behind the scenes. And so this fig tree is really nothing more than essentially an announcement of what Jesus is about to do. So he curses this fig tree. He exercises judgment on this fig tree as a way of alerting the disciples. This is going to be a harsh trip. So that's what happens. So he, he gives us the fig tree as a sign of what's about to happen. He walks into Jerusalem and he walks into the temple. And he entered that temple again and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. So here's what's going on. The temple has several different parts to it. And one of the, part of the outer portion of the temple was called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, the Court of the Gentiles was the largest, at least by acreage or by size, it was the largest section of the temple. It was the outer courts. And um, among other things, what it was designed to do and to be was a place for non-Jews, for the Gentiles, to come and to pray. Now, the Gentiles weren't allowed into the inner areas of the court, uh, into the temple. That was just for the Jews and just... Uh, for the men too but this outer court was for the gentiles even for the women to come and to pray now what happens is this jesus is coming in he's already claimed messiahship he's already claimed to be the one that god's anointed and he comes in he's and he's done that you know with that coming on a donkey and everything else and he's coming in and he's going to start this idea of cleaning out or purifying the temple now it's not just that jesus has a temper here <laughs> Jesus is doing something very specific. If we were to go to portions of the Old Testament, we're not going to take our time this morning to go back and, and reread through all these, but if we were to go through to places like Ezekiel chapter 37, or even whole sections of Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, or go back to the prophet Zechariah, or even some portions of Malachi, you would see there are, are references there to not only God, but to God's anointed one purifying and cleansing the temple, and the worship of God. One of the things that was expected, potentially, of the Messiah was to be one who came and cleaned and prepared and purified the temple as a place of worship. There were even some places in the Scripture, especially Ezekiel, that even talked about the maybe, it could be interpreted by many, that the Messiah would actually replace the temple. Now, I think that's kind of interesting. Because there is a sense that Jesus did exactly that, didn't he? 
When Jesus came and he died and he rose back to life, he made the needs of the temple at that point irrelevant. And the truth is that you and I this morning are, in fact, the temple of God. So, in fact, in ways, he actually did replace the temple. So when Jesus comes in and starts doing this, it's another proclamation. So on day, this day, he has, well, it's even back up. In Jericho, he healed, a, he healed a blind man, which we saw was a particular sign for the Messiah. He comes in, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He's now coming on the donkey, and now he's purifying the temple. These are all signs to an to a Old Testament, what we call Old Testament, to a Bible-knowledgeable Jew this dude is making a proclamation. He is saying that he is the one, that he is the Messiah, that he is the King. And so, just to jump ahead a little bit, if y'all remember when Jesus was put on trial, that he was accused of saying that he wanted to destroy the temple? Now you and I would go, well, he didn't really say that, did he? He, was, he talked about the destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And we know that that's a reference to Jesus' death and resurrection. But this clearing out of the money changers, this is a proclamation that he is the Messiah, that he's here to, to at the very least, purify the temple. And some would have thought that was a sign that he might intend to replace the temple. So you can see that on some people's perspective in Jesus' day, they might have gone, he really actually might try to tear this place down. He scared some folks. He rattled their cages. They didn't know what to make of this. At the very least, Jesus is seen in this act of coming into this court of the Gentiles and clearing things out. He is seen as proclaiming a coming judgment and move of God in Jerusalem. Now Jesus says something here. He says there in uh, verse 17, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a, a den of thieves or a robber's den. We know what else where he talks about the temple being a place for God's glory. I'll deal with, we'll deal with the mind changers and that stuff in just a few moments. But one of the things that's happening here is this. This location, the temple in Jerusalem, was a place set aside for the glory of God to be made known and for the worship of God to take place. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that God is actually called a jealous God. And that is this. There are a couple things that we realize that God will not put up with, that God will not share. God will give us many blessings and God will share many things and provide many things for us, but a couple things He will not do. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that's my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God says, I will not put up with anyone else getting worship or getting the credit for what I have done. I will not share that glory. That's pretty, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And so, when Jesus comes to the temple, this is not a place... He says, for anything else other than God's glory, I will protect God's glory. Now secondly, this, it is a place for the people to pray. John chapter 10, God does not share His glory, and He will not, He will not 
let go of or share or drop his people. He does not let go of his glory. He does not let go of his people. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus said, um, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. You know a couple things that God won't let go? God will not let go of His glory, and He will not let go of you. Once you are His, He says, yeah, break that grip. And as Jesus walks into the court of the Gentiles, a couple things are happening here. God is declaring, Jesus is declaring, this is a place for my glory, my work, my people. And I will not let this thing slide. I will not let this thing go. I will not give up my glory. And I will not give up my people as they come to me to pray. And Jesus cleans house. By the way, as you think about this, and this over the last week, I don't know if some of you guys may be familiar with the name of a gentleman by the name of Josh Harris. Um, Josh has been a, for about 20 years now, a very prominent author. He, uh, some of you, especially if you worked with teenagers, he wrote a book about 20 years ago called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And uh, Josh, as a young man, was a, a leader in this idea of encouraging students to... Um, to wait for marriage before they had sex. And he's been a very prominent leader in, in, a, in, in many ways. And um, about a week and a half ago, Josh Harris went out on social media and made known that he and his wife were separating and getting divorced after 21 years of marriage. And then on Friday, Josh Harris on Instagram made it known that he, by any definition he was aware of, was no longer a Christian. He had left the ministry a couple years ago and and that has thrown a lot of people for a loop because he was, especially in some circles, a, a, a kind of a youth ministry icon, if you will, for many people. And now here he is after 20 years saying he's no longer a believer and he is denouncing everything he's ever said. Now what happens when we see somebody like that? What happens? That Did God let go? 1 John chapter 2, I want to uh, just, this is just a little side note for us here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John's describing some people there in the church in the first century. And John says this, They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out. So that it would be shown that they are all they are that they all are not of us. James chapter one, and we we know that that part of James that says, um, yeah, get my page sticking together here. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. That's everyone's favorite verse, right? That's the one everyone has on their bumper sticker. <laughs> oh, not? Okay. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. One of the signs of the Old Testament, or the, I'm sorry, the New Testament, one of the signs of a genuine believer is their endurance. In other words, do they hang in there? Now, I'm not saying do they have bad years or even bad months, but do they, over the course of their lifetime, stay true to the faith? Now, if someone's made a profession of faith, but then a few years later walks away from the faith and never returns, we have evidence from 1 John and other portions of the New Testament that they were never genuinely saved to begin with. That endurance is one of the hallmarks of genuine faith. So, when I say that God does not let go, I mean God does not let go. We are His. And if someone you know is able to walk away from the faith and denounce their faith and actually stay to that, and they don't come back, then they were never genuinely gods to begin with. They were, as John said, they were those who, they, they were in us, they went, even went out from us, they looked like one of us, but they left us, so that, and they left us so that everyone knew they really weren't one of us. Now, I don't know, for Josh, I don't, Josh Harris, I don't know what his situation is. I don't know if a year from now or five years from now he might come back to the faith. I don't know. I don't know if he's a genuine believer or not. I do know this, that God doesn't let go of his own. God does not let go of his glory. And part of what's happening here in the temple in Mark chapter 11 is this. Jesus, in cleansing all this, and in particular as he's cleansing this particular court of the Gentiles, he's making a statement that what takes place here and the point of this, I will not let go. Now, a couple things that were, that were happening here that Jesus is really going after in the, for the Jewish temple. And the first thing is this, it's pride. The temple had become not just a place of worship. The temple had become not just a, a place to meet God and to make sacrifices for sins and all those things that we, we might think of. The temple had become, for the first century Jew of Jesus' day, a point of national pride. It's like going to the Washington Monument. It's like visiting the Capitol in Washington, D.C., it was a point of national pride. And it ceased to be a, a place of simply a prayer for God's glory to the nations and a prayer for God's work, a place of atonement, and it became a place of pride. About 180 years before Jesus uh, was on the earth, there was a, a previous temple on those same areas. And at that point in time, the, the Jews were under the uh, dominion of, of the remains of the old Greek empire. And there was a, a, a guy who had proclaimed himself to be emperor of the Greeks by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. So we get the word epiphany. Now, if you, you know what the word epiphany means, you get this idea that this guy really thought highly of himself. And this man, at one point, became so angry with the Jews that he destroyed Jerusalem, he declared himself king, he walked into the Holy of Holies of the temple, erected a statue of Zeus, and sacrificed a pig. In other words, he said, how can I tick off as many people as possible? And he did that. Many Jews called that the abomination of desolation. It led to immediately to a revolt by a group called the Maccabees. They had some measure of independence for about 80 years until the Romans came in under Julius Caesar. And the temple had become a way, it had become a mark of defiance. It became a way of saying, we are Jews and no one could tell us what to do, despite the fact that Rome was constantly conquered. It was a symbol of 
of pride. And what has ironically happened here is this. One man says this, that what Antiochus had done by blatant idolatry, the Jewish leaders themselves have allowed to happen under the pressure of convenient, or I'm sorry, of commercial interests. What Antiochus Epiphanes had done 180 years before by making Zeus an idol in the temple, the modern Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had done by allowing profit and commercialism to come in instead of prayer. Because it had become less a place of religion and more a place of pride. So Jesus says, listen, the worship of God has no place for pride. Because pride is a challenge to God's glory. And you cannot be in God's presence and proud at the same time. You think highly of yourself, when you meet God, that will disappear. <laughs> the moment you start thinking really good of yourself, encounter God and that will all go away. You cannot be proud in the face of God's glory. But not only that, this court of the Gentiles, this outer court, was a court that was designed to be a place where those who were not Jewish could come, pray, and encounter the truth of God. It was a place for the Gentiles to be educated, disciples to be made, if you will. And by filling this court with the selling of doves and money changers and all the stuff that was going on, they had taken an area designed, if you will, for outreach and missions. It's essentially the, the missionary area of the temple. And they had thought so little of the attempt to make God known to the Gentiles that they took an area designed for that and made it an area of convenience and commercialism. They had forsaken their purpose. We understand that all the way back to Abraham, that God had called the people of Israel together as a people, not just for their own sake. He had called them together not just so they could get together and pat each other on the back and make each other feel good. He had called them together not just so they could look at one another and go, boy, aren't you and I good and aren't the rest of the world bad? He brought them together so that they would be, in fact, a light and a blessing to all the nations. Isaiah chapter 56, in referencing the temple, says it's to be a place where the nations are called to worship and the nations are called to pray. And they had taken an area designed to reach the nations and had made it a place of personal convenience. Now, I don't know about you, but I saw that this week and I went, ooh, wow, that hurts. Because I wonder how many times even in the year 2019, that you and I, as the people of God here, take the blessings and the things that God has given us, and instead of using them for the purpose with which He saved us, that is to reach the nations, are using them for our own personal convenience. I got convicted this week. The people of Israel in Jesus' day had made the fact that God was their king, but he had made, they had made him a small king. He was only king here. He was only king of these people. He was only king of this part of my life. He was only king right there instead of king over everything. God does not share his glory. And as they had begun to even make it difficult for the people to come know God, God says, I will not share my people. We are going to do this, God says. And, he, and Christ comes in and throws these folks out. Now, many have speculated that one of the things going on here was that 
they were in fact robbing people in the temple. They were overcharging them. They were, you know, a dove that might go for 50 cents over here is being charged five and a half dollars, like going into a baseball game and buying the concessions. And maybe they were, but that's really not the idea here. The next thing Jesus says to them, he says this, you have made this, instead of, instead of this temple being what God designed it to be, you have made it a den of thieves or a robber's den. Now here's what that means. It, robber's den, it, it's really a robber's lair. Now what, what is a lair? What is a den? Well, it's, it's where the robbers come back and hang out for safety after they've been out pillaging, right? What Jesus is saying is this. You guys are going out and living like robbers and thieves. You are denying the purpose to which God's called you. You're living a sinful, rebellious life towards God. And you think you can come in here and do your little rituals and be safe and, nothing's, and there's no consequences to anything you've done. You think you can do whatever you want. Come back here, kill a dove, everything's good. Go do whatever you want. Come back here, kill a lamb, it's all good. You're safe here. That's what they were treating the temple like. And again, I wonder if sometimes, if we're not careful, do we treat our Sunday morning gathering time as, I can go live any way I want to, Monday through Saturday, and as long as I show up to church, I'll sing a couple songs and write a check, God loves me and I don't have to worry about anything. If that's the case, then our hearts have become a robber's lair. Because for you and I, this building is not the temple. This building is not the church. You and I are the church. You and I are the tabernacle. You and I, individually, our hearts, our lives, are the places that God has chosen to dwell. And if I take my life and say to God, to my King, Yes, I know you're the creator. I know you have rights over my life. But this right here, this part of my life, my Monday, you can't have. God, I'm keeping Monday. God, I'm keeping Tuesday. You can't have that. I'll give you Sunday morning. I'll even, well, God, I'm really good. I'm going to give you Wednesday night too. But you can't have Thursday and Friday. And for sure, you can't have Friday night. Then our hearts are robbers' lairs. Because we have taken from God that which is rightfully His and used it for our own purposes. I saw that this week. Boy, I hung my head in shame. Because the truth is, so often my heart is, is a robber's den. So this area, this court of the Gentiles that was meant to be a place to reach out, that had a purpose of prayer for the world, for the nations to come, was being misused. By the way, God still has a heart for the nations. And part of our hearts and part of our calling even today is to also be a place for the nations, a place for the world to come or to go to. By the way, three weeks from now, I want to make you aware of something. Three weeks from now, August 18th, that's Sunday morning. We're going to do a couple of things that are different. The first is this. And I hope you won't use this as an excuse to skip Sunday school. But that morning, August 18th, during Sunday school, we are going to have a missions and ministry fair in this room right here. All the youth and adult Sunday school classes will be dismissed. We'll all, miss in, we'll all meet in here at 9 o'clock for Sunday school. All the youth, all the adults. And in this room right here will be tables and booths set up for every ministry and missions partner that we have as First Baptist London. So everything from like the BCM over at Arkansas Tech, 
to Choices Crisis Pregnancy Center, to Resurrection City Church, to our state convention. If it's somebody that we are partnered with in missions, they will have a representative here at a table here. Even our own youth ministry, our own children's ministry, disaster relief teams that Bob and Jim are, 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 are working in. If we are involved with it, they're going to be here that morning. And the opportunity for us is, as a church, to engage with and talk with and meet and to see what all we're doing and what all we're involved with and then to figure out how we're going to be involved individually. Let me strongly encourage you to be here that morning for Sunday for the, for the Sunday School for the Missions and Ministry Fair to give you a chance to see not just the occasional announcement on the bulletin, but to see face-to-face all the different things that are going on that ways that you can be involved in ministry. And by the way, that morning for Sunday morning, you're going to have a chance to hear from some of our own folks who have done missions and ministry over the last few months and hear the testimonies of what God has done through these things and through these mission trips. It's going to be a cool Sunday morning. August 18th, three weeks from today, by the way. Because we understand that just as God gave them court of the Gentiles to the Jews, He has called us as well to minister to all people. Finally, He says this, it is a place of prayer. We take time on Sunday mornings to pray quite a bit. Now, corporate prayer, when we all get together and pray together, it may seem to some boring. It may seem to some useless. It may seem to some on the outside as as kind of a, a waste of time. But I would argue differently. If you go through the New Testament and look at the church, the church that moves and acts and does what God wants it to do and is powerful and effective is a church that always is a praying church. Acts chapter 2. They're waiting in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to show up. And what are they doing? They're praying. Acts chapter 6. There's division and conflict in the church. So what do they do? They pray. Acts chapter 12. Peter's in prison. So what do they do? They pray. Acts chapter 13. The church sends out some of the very first missionaries. So what do they do? They pray. Acts chapter 4. They devote themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They pray together when they eat. They pray together when they're fasting. They pray together when they're threatened. They pray together when things are going good. They pray when they're appointing elders and missionaries. They pray together in the formal temple worship service. They pray together in each other's homes. If they were together, they were praying. Jesus said, if two more gathered in my name, there I am also. That's not just a promise. It's a command. If there's more than a couple of you guys get together, pray. And you don't have to wait till Sunday morning to pray. You can help you guys together. You can pray on Thursday morning or Wednesday afternoon. And we are for sure going to pray together as a church. A church that does not pray is a church that's weak and powerless. By the way, prayer is an equalizer too. There are some of you in this room that are big, strong, and healthy, can move chairs and tables. Some of you can't. Some of you can reach high things. Some of you can reach short things. Some of you can sing. Some of you can't. Sorry. Some of you can teach. Some of you can't. But whatever you think you can or can't do, we can all It's a great equalizer, if you will. 
Prayer is not based upon whether you're a male or female, whether you're 15 or 65. It's not, prayer is, is, is not based upon, or your, your effectiveness in prayer is not based upon how big or strong you are or how much money you make. It doesn't matter if you were once a horrible sinner, if you were raised in church and don't think you were just been an angel and a saint all your life. You can pray. Jesus comes in and cleans house. Because God will not let His purposes and His work be ignored or robbed. He will not let pride, He will not let our pride stand in the way. He will not let the mission of making others or bringing others to Him, He will not let that go by the wayside. God always accomplishes what He wants to do. So Jesus comes in, announces His kingship, and says, this is my house. Now again, as I mentioned a few moments ago, today as a people, we, you and I, are the temple, the tabernacle, the place that God dwells. Here's a question for you this morning. Is there a part of your heart Is there a part of your life that Jesus would come into and have to overturn all the tables in? Is there a part of your life that you have said, no God, you can't have that, I'm going to use it for my purposes, that he needs to come in and clean house? Is there a part of your own temple this morning that needs to be cleaned? 